G'day, you're listening to the best bits of Breakfasters for this week, ending Friday the 8th of December. We're on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 till 9am, broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. On the podcast this week, Dr Jen is back. She's just been in Antarctica and she tells us all about it and exploring the who, what, where and why of intoxication. Knocking the top off a people's history of alcohol in Australia is edited by Ian McIntyre. He joined us in studio. Adam Christie wraps his top games for the year and Oliver Coleman takes us through a very much hypothetical scenario involving a border collie and a couch. Artist and online sensation, hydraulic press girl Smack McCrana tells us how she squeezed herself into the NGV triennial and we close the pod with Nat's predictions for 2024. Triple R. Dr. Jenny's back, more or less, in one piece for after an expedition to Antarctica. <laughs> Welcome home, Dr. Welcome. Jen. Thank you. It's so nice to see you. I've missed you. Oh, no, we've missed you. You're, you're part of my routine, coming in and chatting <laughs> science, and I haven't been able to do it for a month or so. So we've just been be sitting here while you've been. You, do, you only do expeditions to Antarctica. There are no, you know, pop in or stop over. It's uh, expedition is the word associated, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Expedition voyage. Mm. You certainly don't say holiday. Don't <laughs> holiday in Antarctica. Ah. I've been working very hard but working on very good things. I thought so. you were on a Contikia. <laughs> so I got it wrong. Wait, didn't I tell you? Yeah. So what were you doing? Uh, so I am part of an amazing organisation called Homeward Bound and Homeward Bound is a global initiative supporting women and non-binary people with a background in STEM M. So we're talking science, technology, engineering, mathematics and medicine to basically come together and become more effective, more strategic, more visible, more impactful leaders. And what unites us all is a real deep commitment to wanting to make the world a better place, you know, thinking about a sustainable future. Future, thinking about the legacy that we can leave and really understanding that, that, that the earth is our only home and we need to take dramatic and urgent action mm. to make sure the earth's going to last into the future. And so it's, it's, a, you know, it's, a con- it's, it's a challenging thing, right? So you can say, well, if, all of, if that's what you all believe in, why go to Antarctica, which is clearly a pretty high impact activity. And we talk about that effectively nonstop. Um, but really getting... So we had... 100 uh, women and non-binary people from 29 different countries coming together. We've been working online for about two years and then we all come together in person and go to this part of the world that just completely changes your entire perception of who you are, your place in the world, what nature really is. You know, going to Antarctica just completely blows your mind in every way and it makes you absolutely question every decision you make. Goodness the, me. You know, the footprint you want to leave on the planet. So it's it's been a lot, you know, and now we're all uh, messaging each other constantly on WhatsApp discussing, you know, how do you share that experience in a meaningful way with people when we're all just, you know, our hearts and minds are just full of the the experience and the emotions of being in this, this breathtaking place. It's, how do you um, share yeah. that in 10 minutes? Science well, communicator. <laughs> we, we talked about that a lot and we all agree, you know, I could share a heap of facts with you. I could tell you a lot of numbers. I could talk a lot about climate change. I could tell you how Antarctica's changed. We could talk numbers and, and percentage ice loss and, and, you know, we could talk about all sorts of things. But really it's clear that it's the stories that matter. Everyone is clear that we need to go home and tell stories of how it feels to see this part of the world that is so fragile and so foreign yet so important to the planet. Antarctica really drives the weather systems around the whole planet and if we don't look after Antarctica we're kind of lost in terms of the future. You know, Antarctica holds so much of the world's ice, so much of the world's fresh water. Everything we do here has an impact on Antarctica and in turn everything that happens in Antarctica impacts us back here. How much does the weather change in Antarctica? Massively so. And Mm. that was one of the really interesting things. So we were there working with people who've spent decades and decades studying and working in Antarctica. They know Antarctica unbelievably well. And it's such a privilege to interact with people. So this is our expedition crew, the captain of the ship. And they kept telling us, you know, this is, you know, that word unprecedented, right? Unprecedented storms, unprecedented amount of ice on the surface of the water that we had to, you know, we we weren't in a big icebreaker. We were in a much smaller vessel. 
vessel and the captain was telling us, you know, it's kind of like playing chess where the ice is your opponent and you're having to find ways to get through the ice on the surface. And the weather is just changing constantly. And our expedition leader, Claudia, this extraordinary, extraordinary leader, um, kept telling us, you know, there is only plan A, but plan A has to change every five minutes in order to take into account the winds, the surface ice, the storms. You know, you're just constantly trying to move around, avoiding the worst of the weather. And it's kind of a great way of thinking about the leadership we need on the planet right now where things are changing, changing really quickly. Um, how do you constantly take, you know, get access to the best information you can and make decisions where you can't see the whole picture, but you can see enough that you can try and make good decisions. Mm. Um, but, yeah, constant storms, constant changing weather, constantly changing decisions about where to try and go to next. So, you, you know, we're moving around in a ship. We're not on a base or anything. We're in a ship. We're moving around the Antarctic Peninsula. We're spending half of our time kind of in, in classes, if you like, in sessions, working together, trying to um, bring our leadership skills together. And the other half of the time you're doing what's called a landing, which is where you leave the ship, go onto a small black rubber boat called a Zodiac, and then actually go out to land and get to see just incredible places full of wildlife. What kind of, of wildlife beauty. did you see? Well, obviously a lot of penguins. Mm. I mean, penguins are just the best things ever, right? <laughs> so I think we saw six different species of penguins. Wow. Um, and they're just as charismatic, endearing, captivating as you could possibly imagine. And, of course, you know, in, in Antarctica, wildlife absolutely um, comes first. You know, wildlife always has, the, has the, um, the right of way. So penguins tend to move along what's called penguin highways, which is where they've made a little channel through the snow and the ice to make it easier to move. And your job as a visitor there is absolutely to always give way to penguins travelling along penguin highways. You're meant to stay at least five metres away all the time. But if you've got penguins in multiple directions coming towards you, it can be quite hard to maintain that five metre distance. Um, and they're just, you know, they're just the way they move. Penguins are just incredible. There must be penguins that, in Antarctica that have, haven't seen a human. Do you reckon like wombats at Phillip Island or whatever, these ones are like <laughs> habituated coming up to you wanting a pat? I mean, I think the part of Antarctica we were in, which is the Antarctic Peninsula, where, you know, essentially almost all of the tourists go because it's the most accessible. I think probably most penguins there will have seen a person before. Um, but they're very, you know, naive. They're not frightened of people. And, you know, you guys know I'm a biologist by training and one of the most amazing things about going to Antarctica is just the abundance of wildlife. You know, you imagine standing on a hill and looking out over this incredible bay and you know what you're seeing is something like 30,000 pairs of penguins in front of you. I mean, mm. you just don't get that sort of abundance, you know, and, and this whole island is full of albatross. And, and from a distance, they just look like these tiny specks. And then you have uh, a, a wildlife biologist explaining to you, yeah, but the wingspan of each of those albatross is two and a half metres. Mm. And you're just looking at thousands and thousands of them. Um, and then whales, we saw a number of different species of whales, quite a lot of humpback whales, um, a lot of elephant seals. At the time that we were in Antarctica, mm. the elephant seals, the, the, the pups, which are called the wieners, they're about, they were about a month old and their mothers have just left them for the first time to go back to sea and in a month they've already grown to be a hundred kilos and the the milk that they've been feeding on from their mothers is 50 percent fat so they're mm. just kind of like these slugs they have so much blubber they can barely move but when they see you they're like are you my mum? are you my mum? have you come back to feed me and so again you're moving away constantly not wanting to get too close mm. to this wildlife and you know they're calling and farting and burping I mean it's just ridiculous amounts of noise you think of Antarctica as very quiet and sometimes it's absolutely quiet, but other times the wind is just howling or the penguins are all chattering away or the elephant seals are literally burping and farting. Oh I'm God. not exaggerating. What about... Um, Mrs Brown, boys from <laughs> South Pole. What about um, the sky? What's the night sky look like? Well, so it's summer now in Antarctica, right? So it, it doesn't really get dark. So yeah. you have these beautiful, beautiful sunsets at around, look, I didn't actually notice, to be honest, maybe 11pm-ish, 11.30pm, something like that. And then you have this kind of um, period called the gloaming, which is where it just it's sort of dark, but it's not really dark. And then the sun rises again at maybe 3am or something. Mm. So so people who are like, oh, my God, did you get to see the, you know, the southern lights? It's like, I wish, but, mm. you know, it's, you can't really travel in Antarctica easily in winter. Winter, so it's in summer. It's pretty much the sunlight all the time. You've been before. Has it did change or you or strike you in a different way? 
Oh, that's such a big question. Look, I just feel the most unbelievable privilege to have had the opportunity to work with Homeward Bound and to go to Antarctica twice. I just think that's unbelievable privilege that sits really um, heavily on my heart. I know most people will never get to see Antarctica with their own eyes, so I feel a massive responsibility to use that for good. Um, but, yeah, look, it did feel different this time, absolutely. I think the first time I was much more just kind of, oh, wow, this place is amazing, <laughs> and look at the penguins, whereas this time... You know, we learned a lot about climate change and what's going on, and I'll talk about that on Einstein and Go-Go on Sunday. And, you know, Antarctica is in trouble. The planet really needs us to take absolutely urgent action, and, you know, a COP is happening right now. We need to be aware of what's happening on the planet, and climate change can be seen very visibly in Antarctica, certainly more so when I, than when I was there four years ago. And that's something we all need to carry around and make better decisions about how we live our lives. So, yeah, I mean, for me, it's just the most, you know, I'm a hugely extroverted, gregarious person. Imagine being on a ship for a month with a hundred of the most extraordinary leaders in STEM in the world. You know, I just had the best time. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. It's just the most incredible experience for me. But underneath is this constant sense of responsibility of you can't go to Antarctica without thinking very carefully about how you live your life. What about the fact that COP is taking politics out of it, but the the fact that it's in Dubai and when you've just been in Antarctica and the the spectrum of weather on this planet, yep. does that Well, and, and a number of the women who I was in Antarctica with are in COP now and they are talking about what we did and what we saw and what it meant and the, the urgent change we want to see leaders make. So imagine, you know, for those women to go straight from Antarctica to COP oh and be word. there to represent our experience. We have a couple of people speaking at COP on behalf of, of uh, you know, what, what we've just done and been and and talked about and worked on. So extraordinary, right? <laughs> and this, say your paraphernalia, you went the first time, was there anything that you were like, I'm going to treat myself to a nice pair of sunglasses or something, <laughs> you know, a little the goodie? Gift shop. Yeah. yeah, you certainly. Well, there actually is a gift shop in Antarctica <sighs> run by the British Antarctic Survey, so that, that is actually possible. Um, oh, look, I think I just felt really fortunate that I could concentrate more on what was going on intellectually and emotionally and not worry so much about that stuff. I kind of know you just need a few good sets of thermals. The ship gives you a good pair of boots. Yes, sunglasses and sunscreen really matter, but it's, you know, it's not. I mean, there are a lot of people who do field work and work in parts of the world that are probably more challenging than what it is to live on a nice ship and then go out into the Antarctic environment for a few hours every day. So that stuff, I think, is relatively straightforward. But, you know, don't get me wrong, it's absolutely cold and we did have the luxury of, of getting to do a polar plunge again, which is actually going swimming. So no. 0.6 degrees Celsius, ice all around, and you get to go for a swim, which is pretty remarkable. In a wetsuit, though. No, just in bathers. Holy <laughs> moly. That's awesome. That's a, do you really call that a swim? I mean, is that well, terrifyingly? It's a plunge, yeah, right? it's plunge. a plunge. You plunge under, then you wow. run out and put your thermals back on. Wow. <laughs> how, long, how long are you underwater? Oh, I don't know. Seconds. Good second or two. Yeah. Oh, that's remarkable. <laughs> Was okay. it good? Because sometimes you do those things and you think it'll be great and you're like, this is actually too cool. One of the best things I've done in my whole life. That's yep. so cool. Right. Gee. All right. Well, let's we'll hear more on I'm Sign of Go-Go on Sunday. Indeed. So good to see you. Same here. Jen. Thanks, Dr. Jen. Woo! <sighs> that's right. Triple R. Ian McIntyre is an historian, writer and editor of 11 books on a swag of topics and whose recent publications include Dangerous Visions and New Worlds about radical science fiction and environmental blockades covering the history of the environmental movement. Ian is co-editor of a new anthology, Knocking the Top Off, A People's History of Alcohol in Australia, with a roll call of interesting contributors and ahead of the book's launch this Saturday. At where else but the curtain, the musician and broadcaster joins us now. Ian, welcome to Breakfasters. G'day. Now, can you tell us about the scholarly ambitions of knocking the top off? What are you seeking to drill down and expose in a broader sense? Yeah, look, we wanted to provide, uh, I guess, what's known as a people's history of alcohol in Australia and sort of trace <clears throat> from the... Uh, early days of invasion when alcohol first became like a, a heavily um, uh, consumed thing through to the current day and sort of all the different sort of changes economically, socially and so forth. I guess sort of twin thing of the history of alcohol in Australia but also having this kind of uh, 
you know, lens on Australian mm. society and history via alcohol. And I guess the idea with a sort of people's history or history from below, um, as my co-editor editor Alex often says, you know, it's kind of taking a window on the situation. And so if you're thinking about the alcohol industry, you know, your classic history, top-down history would be kind of look at a beer baron like John Elliott and what did they do or, or, you know, these days the more kind of faceless corporate people who are running the industry, whereas a people's history kind of looks further down into the factory and, you know, what are the, who are the workers there, what are they doing, um, maybe, you know, why, why have they ended up there, you know, mm. <laughs> and then looks into the back alley and who's drinking out there or looks through the pub window, not at the necessarily the publican but the people who are doing the drinking. So it's, it's a, very much a history from below. It's a history of... Um, also marginalised groups. So, yeah, that's but, kind of take. you open with Scott Morrison. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we open with Scott Morrison, I guess, because the story of uh, that story, which uh, many people will be familiar with, which was, you know, he, he went to uh, on holiday during the bushfires um, and then the image of him holding a cocktail glass, you know, sort of became... A big part of, I guess, his absence and uh, I guess also the way in which governments are kind of absented themselves from from ordinary people's lives and helping them out. Uh, But then we kind of juxtapose that with this firefighter who, you know, when asked, do you have a message for Scott Morrison, kind of gave him an abusive spray and then people sent, uh, got in touch with the local pub and shouted that guy a whole lot of beers, mm. which he then shared with other firefighters. And I suppose that was just an opening story to kind of say, even though alcohol doesn't have quite the same level of involvement in our lives that it did, say, 40 or 50 years ago, there's still this idea around, you know, the person who deserves a drink yeah. and the person who doesn't deserve a drink. Mm. <laughs> Did you earn your cocktail? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the unearned co- cocktail. Mm. That still resonates in our society. So, so, you know, even though alcohol perhaps doesn't have the role that it did, it's still, you know, these kind of metaphors and, and so forth yeah. still kind of resonate. What about the eight-hour workday? What's the association with alcohol there? Yeah, well, so one of the things that, became very clear in doing this book is is just the centrality of the pub to Australian life, particularly in the 18th and 19th century. So the pub's often the first piece of infrastructure that goes in when, when a new town or whatever is set up and, and it plays all these multiple roles. And so, you know, when the first unions came together and say, in Victoria, which played a leading role in the eight-hour day, people start uh, working for the eight-hour day, there's very few indoor places for people who aren't part of the elites to meet. So they meet in pubs. And so with the eight-hour day, that means those early meetings are in pubs. And so (laughs) alcohol plays a role there. But then that also shows, I guess, the often vexed role of alcohol because over time people... Yeah, there's, there's a whole bunch of things going on, the rise of the temperance movement and so forth. But people were like, oh, I don't know if meeting in the pub's a really great idea. <laughs> you know, don't seem to be getting much done. And, you know, and, and um, you know, uh, any kind of disagreements, you know, probably get uh, turned up a bit under the influence of alcohol. So the union movement starts to... And also, you know, the money that's being earned in the pub is going to the public and it's not going back into the movement. So the union movement starts to... Uh, you know, develop its own spaces like Trades Hall and so forth. But but in that early stages, the Belvedere particularly, um, that's where unions were meeting, that's where the eight-hour day, uh, the idea for it was formed, and then when they had that first strike in the 1850s and won the eight-hour day, that's where the stonemasons marched to afterwards was let's celebrate at the uh, Belvedere. And, and that history of, you know, in terms of unions, a lot of the organising, formal organising moves out of alcohol-based spaces, but 
a lot of informal organising. Mm. <laughs> People still meet at pubs. Um, we've got a postcard that we're giving, uh, a card that we're giving away uh, with the book at the launch, and that's you know a cartoon of uh, which I'll have to share with you all. Mm. Uh, <laughs> but that's a, a cartoon of during the 1986 nurses' strike of nurses drinking in the John Curtain oh, wow. to celebrate you know what's going on. So it continues to have that sort of role, but again, it becomes vexed because as the eight-hour day kind of widens and they start having these annual um, marches and celebrations which involve tens of thousands and eventually hundreds of thousands of people that kind of become public holiday, um, you know, this kind of tussle over respectability and so forth starts to kick in. So, well, you know, the opponents of the eight-hour day are saying, oh, all the workers are going to do is drink, you know. And then some people are saying, well, if that's what they want to do, why not? Uh, you know, they work pretty hard. You know, they've been working 12 or 14-hour days. Why can't they have time to drink? But then other parts of the movement are saying, oh, no, no, that's not what it's about. It's all about, you know, workers are going to make... Um, are going to self-improve themselves. So... Um, you know, they're very keen not to be associated with kind of people getting on the beers. So, you know, um, some of the eight-hour day events, not so much in this state, but in some states, they try to make them alcohol-free. Mm. So 60-plus contributors? Uh, so tw- I think we've got 20-plus contributors mm. and 67 chapters. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> and and as you canvass them all, what uh, Cherry picks some for us that even struck you as surprising or interesting oh gosh you know it's always that fa- favorite child sort of thing. <laughs> um yeah look look we were really happy to um i co-editor alex um worked with gary foley on a on a chapter about um pubs and black power movement and um you know that was an aspect of gary's um uh, story which hadn't been you know, documented so much before. And that kind of partially covers, I guess, just the role of pubs in terms of people meeting and organising them in the, in the 70s, um, you know, covers some of the negative sides of alcohol for the movement. Um, and it also covers, I guess, that that kind of struggles, which is something that kind of recurs in Australian life over access to alcohol in the pubs. So, you know, Aboriginal people were banned from many pubs, are banned from drinking altogether at different times. Women were um, segregated in pubs, if not banned altogether. You couldn't have music in pubs at times. In the 30s in Melbourne, it was, um, you know, illegal to have a dance within 100 metres of a... Um, you know, somewhere that sold alcohols. Oh, sorry, you couldn't consume alcohol within 100 metres of a dance. So mm. you've got this sort of push and pull. So that, that chapter's pretty interesting. I think the one about the uh, wool shed kissing, um, which <laughs> same-sex kissing, can't get into the details, but yeah. Graham Willips... Um, nice teaser. ...written a couple <laughs> of great ones. Um, we also cover the sort of uh, rise of punk and, and the role of community radio station 4ZZZ in kind of creating um, a kind of pub circuit in um, Brisbane. And the, the launch as well. Ed, you mentioned Gary Foley. Is, yep. Will Gary be at the launch? Yeah. So we've got the launch uh, this Saturday at 4pm. Um, that's the 9th of December at the John Curtin Hotel. And, yeah, we've got uh, Gary Foley speaking, um, Julie Kimber from uh, the Melbourne Labor History Society, uh, Jeff Sparrow, uh, who'd be known to breakfasters, and uh, myself. And a whole lot of our contributors will be there as well. It just strikes me as, well, it, even COVID and the Dan Murphy opening hours mm. and getting on the beers and something from the top shelf, it is just ubiquitous, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, alcohol continues to have, you know, a, a huge role and, and, yeah, this book tries to look at that kind of positive, negative, indifferent, mm. uh, <laughs> how's it been shaped by our uh, economy, our culture. But it's mythic status in the culture. Uh, yep, we certainly cover the, the, that and uh, at times uh, I guess the, the falseness of that, some of the, much of that mythic mythos. Knocking the Top Off is the wonderful title of the book, A People's History of Alcohol in Australia. It's edited by Alex Etling and our guest Ian McIntyre. The launch of the book is 4pm this Saturday at the John Curtin, uh, the bottom of Ligon Street in Carlton. And Ian McIntyre, it's been a great pleasure to have you in. Yeah, thank you.
Triple R. What Mon said. Hello, Christo. Hi. Uh, now, there are a, just so many games you play. You, you just don't stop. It's absurd. I have a spreadsheet. Yeah, you have a spreadsheet. It's, oh. it's very sad. It's called Adam's Gaming's List. And I... I have multiple tabs. Each one's based on the year of like when I was playing the game. I have all sorts of criteria That's that I keep beautiful. track of. It's very doggy. Do you oh. update it straight away yeah. after you finish the Gets game? It's color coded. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Really revealing the fact that I'm also a producer on the side. Hey, it's <laughs> yeah. like even my hobbies I produce. And you've drawn a line under 2023? No, because we've still got December. So mm-hmm. I'm still playing a whole bunch of stuff for this year. But I have kind of. You know, put together the list of my favourites so far for the year and everything that I played this far. So I, I got through about sixty something games this year, which is a little bit less Gee. than I normally do. Um, so this was kind of like a slower year for me, but there were a few big standouts, and so I've kind of created some nebulous categories to sort of like unpack a few of those ones that I think are really worth playing or experiencing. We're going to talk about them today. All right. Where do you want to start? <laughs> I thought we might start off with um, uh, the the kind of re- really kind of airy-fairy uh, category that I made up, which is best gameplay experience, because, uh, you know, all games uh, involve gameplay and experiencing <laughs> them. But which one was the best of that? <laughs> and I, I gave this one to The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom, which yes. I talked about earlier in the year. Um which is the follow-up to the incredible uh, Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, which came out in 2017 on the Nintendo Switch. Uh, this follow-up sort of continued on the idea of like having a big open world to explore in the, the world of Zelda, um, but sort of brought in new powers and abilities for Link to use, the most prominent being uh, a sort of power that allowed him to like stick together multiple objects, which allowed you to start creating... Um, like various contraptions and stuff to explore the world with. So people started creating things like boats, really simple ledges uh, were created. So you could like chop down trees and stick like seven tree trunks together and make like a massive bridge to just get across areas. And then people started working out how you could use the rewind time ability to lift things up and place them down and create your own elevators. Then people created drone bombs and robots and cars and motorcycles and the list goes on. And this this makes good gameplay because it's complex but it's made accessible. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing is it's sort of like that idea of discovery and exploration in like a big like fantasy world. So you go out and see something on the horizon. You're like, I want to kind of explore that and go to that cool castle over there. And what could be in it is also married with the idea of discovery and exploration in like a building sense, like the joy of being given a whole bunch of like Lego blocks, basically, and being told, what can I make out of this? And then how can I interact with the world around me with this thing that I've made? And that's sort of the two things that this game did really well together was marry that sense of discovery and exploration with discovery of like, oh, I can do anything that I want or I can solve this problem any way that I want to. My imagination is the limit here. And Mm. I think that that's a really... There's nothing else quite like it, and I think that's why this game stands out so much as as something really unique and special this yeah. year. Yeah, well, your initial review certainly stayed with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, what other categories have you looked at? Yeah, I, uh, another sort of airy woo-woo kind mm-hmm. of category. I love it. I'm giving you, like, Instagram wellness <laughs> categories for all my games this year. This one is Best Vibes. Hey, <laughs> Oh, you're really so in. I wanted to pick a game that was atmospheric or kind of created a sense or a feeling of emotion. Um, in this particular vibe, I wanted the sense of dread. Uh, so I picked the game Dredge, uh, which is by Black Salt Games, which is a Kiwi uh, game studio. They're an indie game studio. And they created a really cool fishing game. Uh, which is also a horror game. So it sort of plays on Lovecraftian supernatural horror. Uh, And the idea is that you have a fishing trawler, you're a fisherman um, on an archipelago, um, and you kind of go from island to island catching fish. You sell your catch to the locals. But along the way, you start talking to people at different islands and they have weird stories about things that they've seen at night. You start dredging up some really weird fish that seem to be quite mutated. Things start getting a bit uncomfortable from there um and 
Also, like, there is a day-night cycle where if you go out at night to fish, you'll find some of the most interesting and strange stuff, but it's also taxing on your sanity. And so you have to go back to port to escape things that might be coming out of the depths or your hallucinations as you start to get more jittery and and afraid from being out there. And it just is, like... There is a really slow burn horror story happening in this game, which at the same time is a really relaxing fishing simulator where you're just spending time catching fish for the most part Mm -hmm. and then trying to fit them into your boat. So a lot of this game is like sort of playing with like Tetris blocks of fish and crabs and various things that you've caught and trying to like fit them into a grid, which is your boat's inventory, and then go, have I got enough here? Can I take it back to sell? Um, And that's a really sort of rhythmic, relaxing sort of mechanical thing that you're doing in gameplay, which is offset sort of by the uncomfortable weirdness of the world that you're exploring. So it's that sort of... um, that balance between doing sort of like checkbox work, which can be really soothing in a lot of games with the really disconcerting story that's sort of slowly unfurling before you. The, the dimensions cool. of trout meets horror. Just yeah. extraordinary <laughs> stuff. It's really wonderful. Uh, the team also just put out a new expansion for it as well. So there's some new story content for Dredge. So if you played it earlier in the year and you want to go back and experience it again, um, there's a good reason to. And that one's on PC and Switch. All right, Dredge for the vibes. Uh, where else are we heading? Um, coolest surprise. Hey. <laughs> um, so this is a game that uh, normally I wouldn't really get into because I am very bad with sort of puzzle games. Uh, but I, it's a really cool surprise and I think it's really awesome. And it's been sitting uh, at the top of a lot of the uh, kind of app store lists since it came out in November, which is Gubbins, which is uh, an iPhone and Android game, mobile device, devices game by Studio Folly in Melbourne. Um, And it is a contender for probably one of the best mobile games of the year. Mm. Um, So if you like things like Wordle, if you like Sudoku, if you like Puzzlers, if Mm. you like Brain Teasers, Gubbins is your thing. Oh, I've been wanting a new game. This is exciting. Think of it a bit like Scrabble, Mm -hmm. right? So uh, Gubbins has like a board that you can put down letters on and you get like a, a bunch of letters, tiles that you can sort of use. And the idea is you're chasing a daily high score. So how many words can I make out of these letters that it's giving me before I run out? And can I make some really interesting words and can I beat my friend's scores with this? The trick with Gubbins is that it brings in the Gubbins themselves, which are cute little creatures that interact with the letters and and the board itself. So you have helpful Gubbins. So there's a a little like pen Gubbin, which is this cute little pencil thing that walks onto the screen. And that can replace any letter in a word for you. So if you're trying to come up with a convoluted word to get like a high score, you can stick the pencil in there and have like an extra letter as like a free option. There's a little trumpet Gubbin, which is really cute as well. And that thing just adds an iron onto a word so that you can make it bigger and get a higher score (laughs) then there are the bad gubbins which come in and just ruin the board or make things more challenging for you might they might lock off a bunch of letters so that you can't use them they might appear and explode new letters onto the thing that suddenly like throw out your plans for what you might have been trying to do so you have to work around them and it's just really addictive and really fun and it's gameplay it looks like a coloring book it's got a gorgeous art style so it's got that beautiful sort of illustrated art style the gubbins are really cute and you can kind of collect them as well, uh, which brings a sort of collectible almost Pokemon feel to Mm. like a word game. And it has a really beautiful score. So normally with puzzlers and games like this, people tend to turn off the sound and not really listening to it. But there's a really cool sort of rhythmic kind of chill jazz soundtrack going on Mm. underneath it all. It's just a really beautiful, wonderful little... Uh, word game that is very smart in what it does in terms of like addictive puzzle gameplay, but also gorgeously developed, I think. Mm. So mm-hmm. one of those games where you look at it and you go, someone really put in a lot of care and love mm. for like what a game can feel like and what the art style can really bring to a puzzler. And the surprise is the just unexpected addition to the gaming world of this beautiful yeah. Gubbins. Welcome Gubbins. It's exciting <laughs> to have you. And nice to have a really cool puzzle game uh, on your phone that's that's local made as well from mm. a studio team in Melbourne. So Yeah. Now, from my uh, noob perspective, it seems to have been a big year in video games and successful video games yes. that you've really enjoyed. This, this is one of those years where I feel like maybe once every eight to ten years we have like a, a 2023 the last one i would say would be 2017 mm. before that a few people were saying you know 20 2009 2008 2007 those were all really strong years it feels like yeah 
this is one of those lightning strikes years where so many good games come out in such a short period that are going to be extremely influential to the next decade or so of how games are developed and thought about and made. Yeah. Um, so how do you select f- from this purple patch your game of the year? It's been hard. Okay. <laughs> Overall, I went with uh, you know the one that I had the most fun with, and the one that I think is is also I think really captured a huge fandom as well. That just feels like there are a lot of people really enjoying this particular game and its world and its characters. And so that overall game of the year for me is Baldur's Gate Three, which okay. came out earlier this year by Larian Studios on currently on PC and PlayStation Five, coming later on Xbox. And it's the Dungeons and Dragons uh, kind of uh, collaborative game. So uh, Larian Studios worked with Dungeons and Dragons to create a Dungeons and Dragons video game. This is an 80 plus hour long epic kind of behemoth role playing game uh, with incredible production values that this genre of game normally doesn't have. So fully motion captured, captured like uh, cutscenes. Um, beautifully acted characters uh the voice actors have all gone on to like become like mini celebrities in gaming culture because people love the characters that they voice so much that they're now blowing up on tiktok just recreating scenes from the game it's all quite fantastic and weird um you know it's if if you're interested in the idea of turntable like tabletop role-playing or or turn-based rpgs this is a great starting point because it pulls on some of the best elements of those genres and gives you just a wonderful world to explore and the ability to either create your own character and really define them within the story in a way that feels satisfying or jump into one of six predefined characters and feel out their experience through the story as well. And those characters, if you don't choose to play as, become the companions that you'll spend most of the game with in your party as well. And they are fantastic. So there is Asterian, who is a vampire, and he is an elf, and he is kind of an upper-class noble and a total prick. Um, really fantastic character, just... Um, Reminds me a lot of Lestat from uh, the uh, Interview with a Vampire remake that was on AMC and Amazon earlier this year. Just really, just incredible disaster bisexual. Just horrible person. Um, uh, There's Lazel, an alien warrior from another dimension, who is a fish out of water on this strange fantasy planet. And... You know, comes from a warrior cast and has no qualms with telling people to get out of her way and bow down to her. She's fantastic. Uh, there's Shadowheart, the priestess, who has lost most of her memories and really loves her god. And she is weird and fantastic, and I don't want to spoil her character, but she grows so much across the 70, 80 hours that you'll spend with her as a character. Um, and that's just three of the myriads and myriads of characters that you'll find in here, the great cameos, the interesting story arcs that happen here. It is a remarkable game that is so big and so complex and feels so rewarding to play. Wow. Well, Baldur's Gate 3 is Adam Christou's Game of the Year for 2023 overall. And thank you for bringing such a massive industry and breadth of entertainment and synthesising it for Breakfasters. It's been a real purple patch of a year and uh, terrific insight every time we get to chat. Oh, thank you. Adam Christou, let's do it again. Cheers. Bye. Triple R. Oliver Coleman's pulled up a few in the Triple R studio where he lives. Morning, Oliver. Good morning. Hello. Good to be here. Bless all of your hearts. <laughs> Just rolled out from under the desk there. Yes, yes. I was under there having a little snacky. <laughs> Ate people's um, little dead skin cells in the night time, but no one's here. Uh, is this a pit stop for you on the way somewhere else? Yeah, I'm on my way to Meredith. Cool. Whee! Toot toot. Yeah. Watch you out. Yeah, I want to go to bed. Oh, yeah. I can't be bothered. <laughs> it's so much work going to a music festival. It's it is. it's exhausting. I'm not a person who like um, uh, naturally enjoys things either. <laughs> you know how like so every now and again I'll go out to the backyard. My housemate will be there, mm. and he'll be like laid out, kind of shirt off, mm. with like a jug of water beside him with like <laughs> mint, lemon, and strawberries oh. in it. I'm like, I would, wow. I would never. He like 
I hydrate, but he like creates experiences. <laughs> I would never do that. Um, but man of leisure, man of leisure. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. to to find bliss and nirvana in the most banal activity, and is, it's just beyond you. It's extraordinary. Mm. I ask him what he's doing, and he goes, "Just enjoying the sun." <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, I wish I could do that. Anyway. So now you've got other skills, John. I do have other skills. I do have other skills. Uh, I was going to run through a little uh, hypothetical with you this morning, Mm -hmm. if if that's okay. And maybe I can get your views and we can work through that together. Mm. Um, Okay, so in in this hypothetical situation, uh, a person has uh, committed to dog sit their friend's puppy whilst they've gone away. Um, and uh, do you remember that show, Jeffrey Robertson Hypothetical? Yes. What a great time. Oh, so good. My mum loved that. Mm. I, remember, I remember. Anyway. I, I Imagine of... having a career as a barrister or a QC or whatever and then just swanning in and making one of the most iconic TV shows of all time and going, I, that'll do. Mm-hmm. I know, and it's a step down as well because yeah, exactly. he was like a human rights commissioner and then now he's getting celebrities to imagine they're on a cruise ship. <laughs> It's like, <laughs> um, but okay, so this, uh, so I'm, it's, uh, hi, it's good to be here. I'm Jeffrey Robertson. Um, <laughs> in this situation, hypothetically, this person is dog sitting their uh, friend's puppy, which is uh, a hypothetical border collie, mm. um, which isn't, if I was going to get a, not to judge anyone's dog choices, mm. Natalie Harris, but if I was to get a dog, a border collie. I wouldn't necessarily get that if I lived in a very small mm. townhouse in Richmond without a large area for that dog to run around in and burn off excess energy. Otherwise, that dog might be prone to some sort of kind of emotional outburst when their friend is hypothetically uh, dog sitting that dog. <laughs> um, obviously, this is completely hypothetical, this situation. Completely. 100%. And so, hypothetically, this person has gone away for their. Uh, brother's 30th birthday to the Gold Coast okay. because they want to ride roller coasters for their <laughs> hypothetical 30th birthday. Oh, a hypothetical um, super park pass. Exactly. Yeah. Hypothetically, I'd say it's about time to grow up. Yeah. Really. Um, so <laughs> hypothetically, you sound jealous. You're not invited. <laughs> hypothetically, I might have that emotion. Yeah. Hypothetically, was... I'm jealous. <laughs> oh, I want to go. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay, so that's happening. And then uh, this person uh, uh, got called away. They um, had to go to. They had to go volunteer somewhere. Mm-hmm. Not to over-explain what volunteering is, but you know how a triple <laughs> R sometimes there's like presenters and stuff, and they volunteer and they come, and maybe uh, maybe this hypothetical person would, was doing something like that. But the, sorry, the dog sitters of, volunteering or the theme park the, attendees volunteering? The, 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 the dog sitters sitter. volunteering because okay. the theme park. Persons at the theme park. Yeah, I don't know. Yes. They just got a call. Daniel, it's clear. It's very clear. <laughs> it's happening. I don't know why I can't follow. I've got to get off this roller coaster and volunteer. <laughs> this is a. See, Jeffrey Robertson was much better at this than I am. I'm starting to figure nah, out. No, it's great. Maybe. Should have done a law degree. I should have finished my law degree, but instead I'm underneath this desk eating skin cells. <laughs> Um, so, okay, hypothetically, this person is, is volunteering uh, maybe somewhere like here between the hours of 9am and midday. Oh, yeah. And maybe they accidentally misread the very the kind of extensive instructions on how to care for this dog. Oh, no. And they failed to leave the back door slightly oh, no. ajar so that this dog could run in and out of the house okay. if they wanted to. And then this person has come back and um, noticed uh, quite quickly that um, the couch has been... uh, Destroyed. I suppose destroyed would be unusable. Are you serious? Unusable, hypothetically. Both cushions, um, inside out, all over. Hypothetically destroyed, all the arms chewed, chewed up. So in this hypothetical situation, who would you say is at fault? Well, um, I, I I think if you go to if you drill down into the core of it, I while it sounds as though this the person involved in this situation is trying to outsource or deny their culpability, I do think yeah maybe the breeder dog it was a mistake. It's the dog. I think it's the breeder. It's the breeder. I think it's your fault. 
because... No. <laughs> Oliver's not even in this. Yeah. Hypothetically, it's your fault. You, you, you. This, this hypothetical person. Yes. Because you should never have agreed to dog sit a puppy. It's more work. I mean, it's too much work. It's too much responsibility. It's like babysitting someone's baby. So who's going to get who the couch? Oh, oh, gee whiz. The well, dog. Can I also ask, isn't it very counterintuitive to leave a door ajar in a high crime area? This is why I absolutely agree with that, Daniel. I think that is a great point to be made. Mm. Instinctively, this hypothetical person is used to closing their door. <laughs> this is, we're talking back door to a closed backyard with no access to criminals. Oh, yeah, criminals. Uh, uh, most crime. criminals I've made, they see a fence and they go, if only that weren't there. They're I w- w- wily folks. They, they <laughs> hop, skip and jump that fence, I reckon. <laughs> yeah. I'm imagining like a musical, like criminals on like the back of the house <laughs> doing the like... Jets. Yeah. It's exactly jets like that. Here. What about... A musical number. I would say we don't want to discount the uh, responsibility, just in terms of like making amends and trying to fix this situation and get these people a couch. Mm. At this hypothetical community radio station that this person volunteers at, there does seem to be quite a surplus of couches in the green room just outside <laughs> that hypothetical studio. How much? How closely do they replicate? They're pretty spot on. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> and just they're not even that old. You should have seen what we had before we got them. <laughs> dog got them. <laughs> dog got them exactly. You gotta stop interviewing so many naughty dogs. So I would just say that those couches, you know, I come in here sometimes. There's very rarely all of them being used at once. No. Maybe, maybe there's something that could be done. Maybe I have, one of them. I have an idea. Yes. You're going to Meredith this weekend. Yeah. <gasps> yeah. Do you know what happens at Meredith? The couches. Abandoned couches. Yeah. And it's going to be record-breaking <laughs> rain this weekend, so it'll be in top Yeah, nick. they're always going to be in such beautiful nick. <laughs> so I think, wet. I think you're onto something. I think that's a great idea. You're right. How much do we value these couches when there's a cushion out there with – Pink, the artist pink on it, is that right? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, and I'm just looking at the. I don't think. When was the last time pink was played on Triple R? I don't think ever. ever. And yet there's a cushion in the green yeah, room. Yeah, because it was free. A label yeah, sent it free. to us and we well, wanted it. I'm just oh. saying that maybe it shows that we're not um, holding the couch in as high regard as we might and therefore if it did disappear, maybe no one would notice. Or, and maybe if there is currently a, a go get van out the front. <laughs> And a couple of people went to a song break yeah. and maybe helped someone <laughs> load a couch into a go-get van. It's good because they'll never know that we were involved. Yeah. Exactly. They yes. definitely no. won't be able to trace it back to you. That's what is so perfect That's, about this plan. That, exactly it right. It is going to fly perfect under the radar. I think we're, I think we're, I think this is the per- – speaking of criminals, I think we <laughs> just found right. the perfect exactly. we're here to help. Uh, although, have fun at Meredith. Thank you so much. I will do my best. Melbourne's own. Triple R. Smack McCrainer is an Australian-born US-based artist, choreographer, dancer, actress, set designer and creator of Hydraulic Press Girl Performance Art Series launched in December 2020 and after 180 plus videos has amassed over a billion views. Now, the simple squashy idea of seeing the thing dance a thing is getting the gallery treatment as part of the renowned contemporary art exhibit Triennial on now at the National Gallery of Victoria. And to tell us about it, the uh, TikToker turned... Absolute certified artiste joins us now. Smack, welcome to Breakfasters. Hello, good morning. Good morning. Now, is this the, the joke's got out of hand? <laughs> you know what? I, that's how I've kind of been talking about it. But maybe deep down, I've always been like, "Nah, this is exactly this is uh, maybe the journey it was meant to be on, but mm. I, it it was maybe faster than I expected." <laughs> yeah, right. Now, to set the scene for those who are unfamiliar, it's it's lockdown. I suppose there's an online. YouTube, there's a YouTube channel like Hydraulic Press that squashes things. Right, yeah. And so that that's like a, a really well-known um, phenomenon on the internet yeah. that it's, I don't know why people watch it, but we do. <laughs> and not to tell your story for you, but you're like, okay, well, maybe I'll dress up and t- dance and choreograph what it is to be, I don't know, like a Vegemite jar getting squashed. Yeah, I mean, it's... It is kind of as simple as you put it. Um, But if we take it back, like the content that I've kind of always done and even when I was a kid, I've always made short form video content. And because I'm professionally a dancer, I've been trained in that my whole life. I just see choreography kind of everywhere as, you know, tacky as my sound. I just see it. So if if something's moving, if it's not moving, I can kind of interpret it as a dance. So as soon as I saw those videos, um, 
immediately I was like, oh yeah, that looks like choreography. Let me film that real quick. But the whole side-by-side concept was something I'd already played with, with um, interpreting animals, dancing, furniture, (laughs) all sorts of things. So it was just another version of that. Uh, But this one in particular just absolutely took off on the internet for some reason yeah and do you uh, you've got your own hydraulic press now I do now I've had one for I mean maybe almost two years uh you know that's where the joke for me was kind of hilarious because obviously I was outsourcing these videos uh, from the hydraulic press channel but then uh you know in terms of content creation and it, it's a business and I started getting a brand in brands interested in working with me and doing commercialization of it so I had to kind of own all of the footage and mm. so I'm like well let me invest in one and obviously I didn't get like top quality because those are quite expensive <laughs> and huge but I got a medium-sized one that I'm able to squish like chocolates and things <laughs> and it's quite a fun thing when my friends come over we always uh look Bring for stuff something to squish, to squish. Yeah. <laughs> I think what really gets people is how incredibly accurate it is the movement is yeah very impressive but I want to know what was your like gateway item the first thing that you kind of mimicked the very first thing was actually play-doh numbers 2020 so for the year 2020 and it was in December and we just obviously that was the first year of the pandemic and no one knew what was going on and so I'm like thank gosh this year is over let's just squash it away and it really that's what it looked like to me and so I thought that was kind of a humorous send-off to the to the year and more lighthearted than what it had experienced all throughout the year. Mm. And so that was actually the very first one was this Play-Doh 2020. Um, But also I kind of film in bulk. So that very day I filmed about 10 videos and stored them in the drafts so that I can continue uploading them. But I did not think I'd be making hundreds. (laughs) (laughs) And when you uploaded it, did you think, yeah, this is good. People are going to like this. Um, I think... The way that I do all my content is if it amuses me, I'm happy with it. (laughs) And so I kind of got a little giggle out of it, you know. It it was really fun to make. Um, And at that point, I was lucky. I did already have this kind of niche audience that were on my side of being a little bit kooky and just understanding what I'm doing. And so I was like, maybe they'll get get a kick out of it too. But it definitely brought in this whole new wave, obviously, of, of people that had never seen anything of my stuff before. So they were maybe confused, but also amused and then just kind of drawn in. Very unexpected. Have you made stuff and not posted it? It just didn't work for you? Um, not really. Right, everything goes <laughs> yeah, on. Yeah, no, I, I, and I, I don't necessarily like do a lot of planning or rehearsal, but I think that's because I've been doing this for so long. It's very natural for me to just pull out my phone and film something. So if I have an idea, I just do it and upload it immediately. And, and it's really like, it, I generally really enjoy it. So mm. I've never uploaded anything that I don't like or I'm not having fun with. But I also think I've never felt the pressure of um, any expectations from anyone. No one's, I've never felt the burnout any, in any way because it's just very free and creative for me. So I'm very lucky for that that I don't have this kind of structure that I need to stick to. Mm. And what about the costumes? Are they in storage? Do you keep, Where do they live? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I um, I live in a weird art studio, so I have this whole area for my costuming, which is also my day-to-day clothing. But, I mean, I mean, if we look at my where I live in Hollywood, I have to audition for a lot of different TV things and productions and stuff, so I kind of have a collection of blank clothing, color block clothing for all those different characters. And so when I started doing these videos, I was choosing the videos that match something I already own. I wasn't trying to just go shopping, although that is very fun. Um, But yeah, I kind of have quite a collection of a whole rainbow collection of Mm. clothes. (laughs) And now what are you doing with the NGV? How is that? How's the NGV utilizing your talents? So they have put on the Hydraulic Press Girl. Um, They've got about 100 videos on display um, across, I think, 10 screens that are life size. And it's just looping continuously. Um, And then I also have a second exhibit called the Emoji Series, which is the debut at NGV. And it's um, a 30-minute video of me basically interpreting emojis from your iPhone. Um, it is series one, though, because there are thousands of those, but I, I did a whole batch of those, and it's uh, it's uh, interesting. <laughs> is that more challenging than the stuff getting smooshed? Um, I'm not sure. I think it that, that's hard to say, possibly, because 
the smush thing has movement, movement right. but with the emojis, I'm trying to do a static pose or like a freeze, mm-hmm. and some of those are like flying. So <laughs> yeah. that is a little difficult, but, you know, that's where editing comes there's in. A, there's a lot of joy and fun in what you do, but I've, I wonder now that it's showing at Triennial, this big serious gallery of people who ever try and impose upon you serious meanings behind your work. Or do you have like – do you have – a response when people ask you what's the deep meaning behind all yeah, this? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people, even online, have interpreted it in so many different ways, which I absolutely love. I think um, for me, I always see it with an underlying tone of humor. That's my passion. And then obviously, there's dance involved, there's fashion involved, there's video editing, everything. So I absolutely can see how people can take away a more serious side of it because I I think it's in there. Um, but yeah, it's been really special and interesting being able to actually see people's reactions for the first time in the gallery setting because I've only ever heard of people's reactions through comments and mm. DMs. <laughs> I mean, I've seen the numbers, which to me, I'm like, okay, this this means that it is getting a response online. But standing in the in the cafe where my uh, my exhibit is, I'm just standing next to these people and they don't even know it's me because <laughs> somehow it's kind of anonymous, which is awesome. <laughs> And I'm seeing people laughing. I'm seeing kids run up to the screen and mimic me. They're trying to do my movements. I'm seeing um, all sorts of families just thoroughly enjoying it, pointing and staying there for sometimes even like hours. (laughs) And it's been really chilling for me Mm. to, to see that. Like I never expected to actually have people really truly laugh out loud and then be really intrigued as much as I've seen in the last few days since it's opened. Have you been tempted to reveal yourself when you see them? Or you like the anonymity? Uh, no, I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't want people to know. <laughs> <laughs> I love just being able to lurk. It's been really fun. What about the acting? What, where are we at with that? And in what way does Hydraulic Press Girl inform your other ambitions for your own art practices? Yeah, I think everything I do is kind of always merging all sorts of things. Um, acting for me has always been there and I've always done that it's always been comedy first in terms of actual acting when I was in Australia um but I it's it's hard to say like what where the journey goes from anything that I've ever done it's always been such a unusual path and I've thoroughly enjoyed that how it's very spontaneous so who knows where this could lead things in terms of acting or dance or even direction and creative direction which is something I love as well um but yeah it'd be really exciting to see what happens next? Do you have any other like niche corners of the internet in your sites to recreate? <laughs> oh gosh, oh absolutely. <laughs> There's a lot out there on the internet um and it's it's a fun place to kind of explore and experiment, <laughs> but we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> yeah, we will. And then what what doors has it opened up for you? Who have you met? What, what who are fans that you're like, "Oh, I can't believe oh, I get gosh. to do this." You know what? It, oh, I should maybe make a list because it, it really does feel like a dream when I see certain names pop in or something and it's like, okay, cool, Jack Black followed me. <laughs> now what do I do about that? Okay, all right. Oh, that is cool. Just like Courtney Act was there laughing at it the other night. Okay, how do I comprehend this? I don't know. <laughs> it's just – it's honestly an honour and it's just like a pinch myself moment every time. And what about being Australian in LA? Does that mean anything or what's the, what's the perception over there? Yeah, I mean – to be honest, I think Americans love Australians and I think in LA and Hollywood, I I really think Australians have such a strong work ethic. We're very well-rounded in terms of the arts and entertainment. We have such good training under our belt. So I've always had a really pleasant experience being an Australian over there and it's come with its perks. But having to come back here for NGV in this country and around these people and having the NGV understand my humor with my performance art and everything has just been absolutely full circle icing on the cake I couldn't have asked for a better way for this to have happened so Mm. it's been so special to come back here because I really don't get back here that much I definitely want to now but yeah it's made this whole experience so much more special and also strikes me just that the humor is not necessarily overt. It's your commitment to being <laughs> the best embodiment of what you're trying to do. That's what's funny. Commitment is key. I think like physical comedy, I've, I've always merged comedy and dance together. And that's my inspiration's always been Frank Woodley. I think he's very physical um, and he's always done all sorts of different versions of that. So 
and Mr. Bean, things like that. Oh. that that's always been my inspiration. Have you asked to meet with Frank while you're in town or you've oh, done already? Frank, where are you? <laughs> <laughs> I've been lucky to have met him over the years. Oh, good. Um, but not this week. <laughs> yeah, right. uh, well, Smack McCrona is the artist and choreographer behind, behind Hydraulic Press Girl, which is video work at, featured as part of NGV Triennial. It opened yesterday and is on through till April in 2024. And we've been very fortunate to have Smack in studio with us. Smack McCrona, thank you. Thank you for having me. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Last night I attended an event at the Wheeler Centre called Crystal Ball Comedy, which is all about different people kind of gazing in to the crystal ball and sharing their predictions for 2024, which was a lot of fun. There was also tarot reading. Mm. I was desperate to get my cards read. But the line was so long. Was it? Yeah. So I hung around till like the end and then I'm like, I was hanging around till like quite late. I'm like, all right, I've got to go. But Have you ever had your tarot read? No, I haven't. Mm. But I think it would be fantastic. I mean, I imagine it's a lot of, what is it, confirmation bias. Maybe. But I've in got, the best kind of way. <laughs> have I said this before? I have, but it, have I told this story before? Jess Ribeiro read no. my tarot live <gasps> on air once. <gasps> wow. But it was during lockdown, so she was on the phone. And she's like, oh, I'll do your tarot. And she told me that I was very fertile and then I had a baby. Wow. <laughs> so she'll, be, she'll be at the OB on Friday, next Friday morning, so maybe she can do yours. That is so cool. <laughs> Have you ever had your tarot? I don't believe so, but the line makes – Is Tara capped? Like how many follow-up questions do you get? Yeah, I know. I was speaking to the woman who was doing the readings before she started and she was like, I'm not sure really how to kind of manage this at an event where – so I think it was like two-minute readings. So maybe you held kind of one topic or theme in your mind and they were going to do like a three-card read. They pr- mm. present the cards. I know I've tried once because I know Irvi, who's a Friday funny bugger, loves to get her tarot cards read, and she gave me a number, but they were no longer doing it. So, mm. yeah, that was- yeah, uh, definitely something. We'll have I to want get to Dr. Do. Jen to look into the yeah. uh, science of tarot. <laughs> but we, I shared some predictions last night. And okay. I thought maybe I could share them with you please, all this morning please. yeah so this comes from obviously i don't identify of having any psychic telepathic abilities oh, that now. i've been hiding mm-hmm. from you this is coming from a perspective of you know someone who just thinks that they can read the vibe of a room sometimes <laughs> and has you know manifested a car park once or twice <laughs> so here are some predictions i feel like i'm going a bit early i'm bolting a bit early for the end of the year with no, 2024 predictions Absolutely yeah, not. Let's, let's get into it i mean yeah. I'm inspired after last night. Okay, so my first prediction for 2024 is for Jan 1st, okay, first day, what to expect, um, where 70% of Australians will say to a close friend or relative that 2024 is your year. Mm. But in a twist, only 10% will mean it. The remaining 60% will believe deep down that it's actually their year. Yeah, which is silly because 2024 is my year, everyone, so forget about it. Um, This next prediction I have is one for the creative listeners. Um, So I will craft highly shareable content to boost engagement and partner with other influencers, brands or artists to expand reach and help attract followers across social media platforms will be written on 98% of all grant applications and marketing plans (laughs) in Melbourne. Um, I've given you two. I've got some more, but I thought we'd share it around. I've oh. given you one prediction to read too, Mon. I've got a few. Okay, yep. Um, iceberg lettuce will be the superfood of 2024. Oh. Along with the humble orange. Oh, Great. A- Isn't that good? But then remember, iceberg lettuce was unaffordable. Oh, uh, yes, so maybe I forgot about they, that. They should have tied in the marketing then to call it a superfood. Uh, yes, you're right, mm. making it a bit more... But I can get That's around right. There are all these burgers that switch to cabbage. Oh, imagine. Have they switched back? Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> I feel like it's cheap and it's great. Yeah. And a superfood next year, apparently. Yeah, Exciting. superfood. And the orange, how lovely. Put mm. that in the fridge for summer, slice it up. Oh, it's delicious. Great. Mm. Um, do you want more? Yeah, yeah, go on. Barrel okay. through them. Um, Willy Wonka purple will be Pantone's colour of the year. Oh, there we go. Purple. I feel like there was a purple colour of the year. I mean, there was millennial pink. 
Yeah, and then I stopped paying attention. I should have been running pa- these past you yesterday. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. right. God, I should have um, emailed through. And an influencer couple known for their sustainable lifestyle and eating everything out of jars will take their seventh trip to Italy in five years. Oh, <laughs> good on them. Now I've given you a bit of a doozy one, Daniel. Do you want to read your pr- prediction? Okay, prediction here. A bored and tired man waiting to see his wife in the running leg of a triathlon down in Phillip Island will see a mouse run along the beach and assume the mouse is also competing in the triathlon. When the mouse is nowhere to be seen for the swim or cycle portion of the event, he'll assume the mouse has given up early and he'll feel disappointed. His wife will later explain that she didn't think the mouse was actually competing, but simply a mouse going about its day. The same man will see turtles swimming side by side, snorkelling off the coast of Tweed Heads, and also assume they are racing. Quite specific, specific isn't it? Oh, I like that one. I've got another one. Uh, a real estate agent will describe an actual box attached to a boom gate as a spacious one-bedroom apartment in a central funky location online. The same real estate agent will go on to write a semi-successful fantasy series about goblins living along the train line. So there you go. Uh, Oprah and Lady Gaga will have lunch. How exciting oh. to discuss the possibility of collaborating on a single but nothing will eventuate, so oh, it'll only no. be us. But don't have much to talk about. Who's it. privy to that? I'll attend a wedding in Tasmania on the 10th of February, but that's more just a reminder for <laughs> me. And lastly, this kind of prediction that's coming through for me, kind of coming in like visuals, just like thoughts. It's kind of hard to pin down the details, but I'm I'm seeing like a massive international sporting event, maybe up to 32 sports, uh, give or take 200, you know, countries participating, mm. people swimming in the Seine. I'm seeing bed bugs. Ah. I'm seeing a torch. Lack of air conditioning maybe. Exactly, Mon. <laughs> wow, there is something out there. I've got that on my tarot card In the energy, well. I know. So, yeah, a bizarre, elaborate picture is coming forth. Write it down. I don't know if this is kind of setting off any bells in your mind. Mm. Yeah. And if, look, if this is to come into fruition, then, well, you we know who to it first. Right. Yeah, yeah, totally. Officially. So, yeah, there are my predictions for 2024. What do you think? I think it's a good, a good year mm. for um, real estate agents. Yep. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's it. Yeah. Every year is a good year for real estate agents, isn't it? <laughs> Let's be honest. I've got another one here. Oh, yeah. Oh, do you want me to read it or not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please, please, okay, please. At least 15 HR officers around Australia will say, okay, thanks for being here, etc." before very much starting a witch hunt. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. So uh, feel free to text me if you've got any predictions. And it sounds like we do need, maybe need to rework the Panatone colour, though. <laughs> oh. And Australian of the Year, who will it be? I don't know. Could be you two. Oh, well, I'll get, get your nominations <laughs> yeah, now. Yeah, watch not out. Too late. Triple R. Thanks for listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters, the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or via the Triple R website.